Welcome to the Cairo Up Mic'd Up Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandon Steele. And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. You're tuning in to a real-world evidence-based skills podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors. And here's how it works. We'll have a slate of new clinical topics that we dive into each month, and you're going to leave with practical skills that you can apply on Monday morning. Well, that's contingent on who's giving the advice, and you're going to want to take mine. I'll score one for the little guy. Well, let's dive in. Well, Tim, today we're going to talk about how you're a pain in the ass. Perfect. We're 15 seconds into the first podcast. You're already headed to the principal's office. Actually, we're going to talk about how you can have a pain in their ass and two main questions that I have. First question, what is one of the most likely overlooked causes of low back pain that could be causative or contributory to up to 40% of cases? And we're going to get to that question. Second question I have for you is when a fly hits a windshield... What is the last thing that goes through its head? <laughs> How did I know it would head in this direction? <laughs> it's, it's butt. Uh, I always love dad jokes. Uh, but <laughs> Don't real- we all? <laughs> realistically, uh, we need to look at that first question because as evidence-based chiropractors, I cannot stand failing with my patients. You know, they come to me with a problem. I need to solve that problem. I need to do it fast. I need to do it quickly. I need to meet their goals. And we have a large percentage of patients that have musculoskeletal problems. And a patient comes in to see me and they have lower back and buttock pain. I'm going to get through those MSK diagnoses. I'm going to do my exam for the lower back. I'm going to do my exam for the hip. And I'm going to look at intra-articular problems for the hip. I'm going to look at extra-articular problems for the hip. And when I see these buttock problems and I see these, um, you know, these radiations of pain that go into the buttock or posterior thigh, uh, I'm really going to lean on my hip exams and I'm going to look for possible um, rationale behind that. But there comes a problem. And the problem is two weeks in, uh, four treatments in, they're not getting better. And I can dig my head in the sand. And I can do another trial of care with a different method, a different treatment. Um, I can continue to uh, do manipulation or myofascial release or exercise. But sometimes we just need to dig deeper. So that's what the podcast is about, is digging a touch deeper for those patients uh, that you have, that I have, that I'm sure our listeners have. When they have that posterior gluteal pain, that numbness, that achiness that's not going away, what else could it be and how do we assess that? So today's podcast is on Mang syndrome. Uh, I hope you can spell it. I still get it wrong every single time and get that red squiggly line in my Word document. Um, but we get Mang syndrome and we can also get that leading to clunial neuropathy. I'm shocked there wasn't a joke about my spelling. <laughs> We're not done. And, and, um, and looking at these nerves because these nerves are responsible for uh, supplying the innervation to the buttock and the posterior um, parasacral complex. And we need to be able to assess. We need to be able to treat. And if we can do these things effectively, we can save our patients a lot of time and we can save ourselves a lot of frustration. So I am going to lean on the expertise of, of Dr. Burlsman when it comes to this uh, conversation. And we're going to ask him some questions and we're going to get some answers and hopefully help us all get through these kind of patients. So Tim, clunial nerve symptoms. What are we looking at? What does this patient look like? What do they smell like? Yeah, great question. It's, it is one of those overlooked diagnoses that I, I overlook myself on a regular basis. But the more that we uh, keep a vigilant eye for it, the more likely we will be to help those patients. The problem is they look very much like your typical low back pain patient. 
that they have pain over the lumbosacral region that radiates over the iliac crest and down. And the problem is not arising from that area. That's the challenge. The problem is usually arising from something a little bit higher. That if we think about the anatomy of the um, of main syndrome and clunial neuropathy, those dorsal roots start at the thoracolumbar junction from T12 to the upper lumbar 1 or 2. And then they course downward, and when they get near the iliac crest, then they pierce that thoracolumbar fascia, that big piece of plastic that covers our trunk, and those nerves then pierce that fascia. They come out through orifices, and they go over the top of the iliac crest and into kind of the center of the buttock, the meat of the buttock. And those nerves then supply the sensation to that area. That sensation is altered when those nerves are compressed. The nerves don't like compression. They don't like traction like any other nerve, and we get symptoms. So those symptoms can arise either at the thoracolumbar junction from an irritation, which we're used to seeing anywhere from joint dysfunction to facet degeneration, or they can arise along the course of the nerve, most notably right where they come over the crest. So if we poke on those nerves uh, four centimeters out from the midline or eight centimeters out from the midline, we'll probably find some sensitivity. Those superior clunial nerves, one of the things that's kind of confusing about the syndrome is that the buttock is supplied by different clunial nerves, different groups of clunial nerves. So the upper group of clunial nerves, if you imagine your three fingers hanging over your iliac crest, those are the superior clunial nerves. And there's a medial, and there's an intermediate, and there's a lateral branch. But then the area over your sacrum is supplied by the middle branches of the clunial nerve, which is a completely separate set coming out of the sacral plexus, and then the inferior clunial nerves coming out more over the ischial tuberosity. So for today's discussion, we're going to talk about those superior clunial nerves, the three fingers that hang over the iliac crest and supply the buttocks. So some irritation somewhere along the line made somebody unhappy, and now it's yelling at them. So those dorsal ganglion uh, nerves, I'm sorry, um, there's a big differentiation there. So we have more of the sensory component versus the motor component. So if we have motor symptoms extending into the lower extremity, we can kind of maybe eliminate this diagnosis and, and go more towards a sciatic type issue. Um, but when we have the sensory component only, then I, I start to at least have my ears perked up a little bit. And one of the things that I think is interesting is that when you look at the sciatic nerve, it supplies sensation to the lower foot uh, than the lower leg. Uh, it doesn't have direct cutaneous innervation to the buttock or posterior thigh. That's the job of these nerves. Um, so when we have those symptoms, we need to be tracing it back to a possible um, etiology uh, that makes sense, of course. So, you know, when you get into clunial neuropathy, which is in this case, a, more of a peripheral neuropathy, um, sometimes we have more of the radicular component of it because you said this comes from the thoracolumbar junction. That's more called main syndrome. Uh, so what's the difference? Right. The, the difference would be where it's irritated. It, it could kind of be likened to someone who has either a cervical disc lesion that causes symptoms into their fingers or carpal tunnel syndrome that causes symptoms into their fingers. One's proximal and one's distal. Main syndrome's a proximal one, meaning irritation at the thoracolumbar junction. And clunial neuropathy is the distal one, meaning that there's a peripheral neuropathy where that nerve emerges over the iliac crest. So... When you have Meng syndrome, that's more of a, a spinal problem. 
Um, I, I know that with Meng syndrome, having a transitional zone going from the, the, the thoracic spine to the lumbar spine, uh, that's where we start to develop issues. And our younger patients are a little, a, a touch more hyper mobile in that area. Uh, and I would use more of a spinal instability cluster looking for a, a catch, a, um, you know, a, an accessory motion when they go to bend or twist. Um, however, if they have hypomobility at the thoracolumbar junction, uh, what are some ways that we can help uh, figure out, is this Ming syndrome at the thoracolumbar area? Um, really like any other nerve problem that one of our greatest tools, regardless of what we're assessing is, is poking on something. Does it cause discomfort that really when we break down any orthopedic test that we do, it does one of three things. It either compresses something or it stretches something or it makes it work. And the same would be true when we're assessing main syndrome or clunial neuropathy that number one, we're going to compress it. And number two, we're going to stretch it. And we really can't make the, the clunial nerves work because they're sensory nerves. We can test their sensation, but rarely will that be absent. So the first two tests are most helpful poking over the area that if you've seen a lumbar spine patient who had a sacroiliac problem or an L5 facet problem and you've adjusted them multiple times, they're not getting better, try poking on the thoracolumbar junction. Say, is that area moving? Is there a lack of mobility? And number two, if you cause some shearing of that area, does it cause irritation to the, to the uh, dorsal roots? And then move on down the line. We can palpate over the top of the quadratus lumborum and lumbar rectors to say, is there more of a nerve type sensation as opposed to your typical myofascial irritation? And then most importantly, poking over the top of those orifices where the nerves pierce that thoracolumbar fascia, which again is about four centimeters from the midline for the medial branch and about eight centimeters from the midline for the lateral branch. And certainly that depends on the patient. So just palpating along the crest of that ilium and saying, is there something that creates a neurogenic type of pain to where it's an, a, a discomfort into the patient's buttock that's produced by shearing that area? I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the things that sometimes we will floss over in uh, definitely the treatment room um, is really just making that differentiation. What tissue is irritated? And when you get down to the tissue that's irritated, um, when it's MSK, you push on it, it hurts. And it usually hurts where you're pushing on it or where you're tapping it. And with more of our nerve type symptoms, uh, it is going to be a different location and quality. And just like you said with the clunial nerves is now pushing out of compressing at the iliac crest can now reproduce those symptoms extending into the buttock. Um, so as far as symptoms extending into the buttock, what is it? Is it, is it a, a shooting pain? Is it a numbness? Is it a tingling? What are the most common symptoms you're going to get? I'd be a big yes, that uh, really anything that that nerve supplies is a potential. It's on the list of, of possibilities. So most of the time, this looks like our typical sacroiliac or lumbar spine patient. It smells like them. They don't like certain movements. They don't like to be touched in the area, but they have that numbness or tingling or paresthesia that a lot of our lumbar complaints will come with pain. Whereas a neuropathy is going to come with other sensory types of, of, of problems, whether that be numbness to paresthesia. So that's what we're really looking for. If we can compress the iliac crest or stress the thoracolumbar junction and reproduce paresthesia and numbness into the buttock, now we're highly suspicious. We should be suspicious of this in really all of our low back pain patients. That main syndrome is either causative or contributory to up to 40% of lower back pain. So in our patients that aren't improving, we want to be super, uh, super vigilant for checking for that and saying, does it cause discomfort? When you have transitional movements of the thoracolumbar spine, when you're getting up and down from a chair, when you're rolling in bed and squatting and bending from side to side, do those things cause an increase in those neurologic type symptoms? 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm on the same page. I think most of the stuff that we see in practice, um, while I love orthopedic testing, and I think uh, there's some great orthopedic tests. In fact, one of them is the ESLR test, really looking at do I have a neurologic problem or do I have an MSK problem and where is that? In fact, we did that study. That was by Shacklock uh, maybe a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, incorporating new tests can really help differentiate where am I getting compression of that nerve? Is it coming from the spine? Is it coming from somewhere distal? And, you know, marrying the right orthopedic test with the right patient uh, can help eliminate a lot of levels of uncertainty. Um, however, this is one that, you know, is, is sometimes difficult to treat because it's so uh, near the stuff that we love to treat. You know, when I, when I see that posterior buttock pain that's been there, it's a little bit achy, it's only on one side, it's not radiating down the leg, you know, I'm going to knock out that SI joint. And I mean, we're all going to hear pops and cracks. Everybody's going to run out of the room. Balloons are going to go off. There's going to be some confetti. And uh, and, and the patient's going to feel better, right? You know, they're going to feel much better after manipulation. It kind of is what it is. Uh, but as the patient's coming back and they're not getting quite better. So as far as, um, you know, clunal neuropathy, are there any specialized tests that we can do to really differentiate that versus, um, you know, more of a sciatic type issue? Right. Yeah. I, I think that using our, our hands and compressing the nerves would be number one, that if we can reproduce discomfort by palpating the iliac crest, or we can reproduce discomfort by challenging the thoracolumbar junction, not many lumbar mechanical complaints are provoked by either of those two. You may have some tenderness in the areas, but if you can reproduce that mechanical that uh, complaint by stressing the thoracolumbar junction, one of the tests that I'll often use is kind of a zigzag test. You know, you, you imagine that uh, you just shear your body off to the side at the thoracolumbar junction. If you have the patient stand and have them try to move their rib cage straight off to the side, if that causes discomfort, that's doing nothing to the lumbar spine. That's a good way to assess the area. And, and most importantly, motion palpating the area to say, is there dysfunction? Because if it is main syndrome, there's a very high likelihood that there's thoracolumbar uh, impairment. Even Dr. Main, who was an, a chiropractor, noted that there is minor intervertebral joint dysfunction was his term for that. And um, we as chiropractors are going to be able to recognize that better than anybody else, hopefully. Let's get into probably the, the reason that most of us listen to these types of podcasts is how to treat this patient. Because when I get into a Ming syndrome, um, clearly, you know, you and I and most of the chiropractors that we know are more motion palpators. They're going to figure out if a joint's moving too much or it's not moving enough. Um, and man, when it's it's hypomobile, there's there's nothing that I like more than uh, than adjusting that A to P um, and, and freeing up that along with the, the proper rehab. However, when it's a peripheral neuropathy, there's a lot more uh, treatments that we can use. Um, so what would you use, you know, getting into pure clunial neuropathy? What are the treatments that seem to work? What are there some, some evidence behind that we can do for these patients? Um, addressing the source. So getting up to that thracolumbar junction, doing your myofascial work in that area, getting mobility into the area if it's hypomobile, or getting stability into the area if it's hypermobile. One of the challenges is that we have this incredible tool, spinal manipulation, and we tend to think that's why you love to hear the pop and why I love to hear the pop. That's why the balloons and fireworks take off because we know that good things are going to happen most of the time. But when they don't happen after a couple of visits, that's when we want to move up to that thoracolumbar junction and say, does that need to be moved? And if it still doesn't happen, then maybe that needs to be stabilized as opposed to mobilized. 
Our patients with hypermobility of the thoracolumbar junction are often those younger patients. They're the patients who are double-jointed, the ones that can touch the back of their hand to the back of their forearm. Young women in particular, people who have a lot of mobility and flexibility, often have a lot of mobility and flexibility in their spine as well. So identifying those patients and getting them into a stability program of a bird dog and a side bridge and a dead bug type of exercise, same things we do for uh, lumbar spine instability can be applied to thoracolumbar instability. So I think most importantly, identifying is it hypermobility or is it hypomobility and then addressing those appropriately. But from a caution standpoint, I don't think there's ever an issue with someone having a little bit more stability in their spine. We often don't see patients who have too stable of a musculoskeletal system to support their spine. So you can never really go wrong by giving the patient some stability exercises anytime there's a question. And then determining is mobility appropriate as well. The other thing that's really helpful for these patients is to do some myofascial release or nerve release of the clunial nerve. And this is one that I know that you do a whole lot of. You've done a lot of our demos, putting the patient on their side. What? How do you do that in practice? I mean, the, the biggest thing with this is just in this kind of a case is opening up an area that's restricted. You know, whether that's a, or where the nerve's diving into the thoracolumbar fascia with clunial nerve syndrome or going into with Ming syndrome, the thoracolumbar junction. So side posture is the best and you have to let the person relax. So they're in a typical side posture that you'll see in diversified technique. Um, but then I've got their, their, their leg held and I'm, I'm nice and supportive and now just rolling them into some rotation and some flexion to help open up that intervertebral frame. And, uh, and you can you can manipulate that that works really well. But I do more of a contract relax. I find that when people have nerve related symptoms, uh, they're a little tight, they're a little nervous, they're a little uh, spastic. Um, so letting them control how much motion that I'm going to roll them to the side goes a, a really a long way. And one thing that I try to talk with my patients about is that you don't have a lack of bird dog in your life. You don't have a lack of uh, doing a, a side bridge in your life. And that if we're looking to solve these kind of problems, it, you created it. Um, the, like you talked about the young female who, who's hypermobile, the way she sits, the way she plays softball, the way she does something has uh, is ultimately related in her symptoms. So we can do as much as we want in office, but if we don't dig into that person's life, if we don't have 98% of the things in our life, as far as clinical life, automated, uh, it doesn't free up the time, that 1% to 2% that really matters. You know, what is, you know, what's, uh, what's uh, Sarah doing at night? Well, she's sitting on her phone in a, in a ball position, you know, uh, you know, texting people. Well, we need to find out those small things. And if we can uh, attack those, uh, if we understand the principle behind the dysfunction, we can help attack the ADL that's leading to that principal dysfunction. And of course, the treatments that we do help calm that stuff down. But if we're going to build tissue back up, we need to make sure that we're also not irritating it on a daily basis. Well, that's a great point. I think that one of the things that plays into what you just said is so many of our patients have now been working from home and they went from something that was a relatively correct, ergonomically correct workstation into something that looks like a couch and a laptop. So when they're flexing forward and stressing those transitional zones, I would expect we'd see more of these. And I know that I've picked it up. I'm not sure if it's just because I've been more aware of it over the past couple of years or it's actually happening more, but I'm certainly diagnosing more, more clunial neuropathies, more main syndromes. And by addressing those things, it, it definitely has a positive outcome. One thing that I um, is, will recommend in some cases is a foam roller that we want to be a little cautious with a foam roller. If there's a clunial neuropathy, the last thing that nerve wants is to be smashed some more. 
But if it is a thoracolumbar junction hypomobility issue that needs some motion, that's a tough area for a patient to maintain mobility. So giving them a foam roller that they can roll up and down the area without getting a lot of compression of the cluneal nerves. We need to remember that a lot of times main syndrome and cluneal neuropathy go together like a cervical disc lesion and a carpal tunnel syndrome. They're often double crush partners. So we want to, to make sure that just because there's main syndrome doesn't mean that those cluneal nerves would appreciate being smashed too. But something that I'll give my patients and, and I think that they see benefit from that. One thing that I would I would absolutely caution my patients towards is if they're not getting results with your first trial of care with whatever you're doing, a lot of times a second option is to go towards a medical route. And, uh, and sometimes we need that route. Sometimes we need help um, when there's a chemical problem. But in this case, uh, what we'll see a lot is when they're not getting results instantly, we go to, towards more of those nerve sedatives like a gabapentin. And we're seeing the research just over and over and, o- and, over, and over again um, having problems with these types of drugs. As soon as you start to sedate the nerves, it's just not helping the actual problem, especially when it's coming from a mechanical source. And I don't know if you saw that, that JAMA article that just came out. Uh, that was June of... 2022, I believe, uh, in 10% of cases of all overdose deaths, gabapentin was involved. So gabapentin is a, the, the ninth highest prescribed drug, I'm sorry, seventh highest prescribed drug in the U.S. So is that a, uh, you know, people have this many nerve symptoms or are we just not able to detect them? You know, they're moving towards a therapy that's less effective, uh, that has a huge cost associated with it because they're not getting the right diagnosis and the right treatment. I I see that as a, as a failure of us getting to the right diagnosis. I'll work with a lot of, of younger uh, practitioners and they'll always ask me one question that that does make me a little bit mad. Why did you become a chiropractor? Yeah, well, I give them the, the real answer with that one. Um, <laughs> however, this answer is, what do you, you can't treat patients faster. They're always asking, how can I treat more patients? How can I get faster at what I do? And I have a stock response is, you don't need to treat faster. You need to evaluate faster. And if you can get to the right evaluation and get to that diagnosis the fastest, you're going to eliminate a lot of wasted uh, time with you beating on structures that don't work, uh, manipulating areas that don't need to be manipulated. If you come up with the right diagnosis, if you have the right principle, principle behind that dysfunction, you'll get to the right answer and only select the right treatments for that patient. Yeah, awesome. And and part of those treatments is certainly rehab. I know that um, all of your patients get rehab along the way, and and main syndrome patients are no different. It's just not a matter of putting some motion into the thoracolumbar junction or performing a nerve release. Those are things that we can send the patient home with tools to help them recover more quickly too. So those things would be um, mobility exercises for any muscle that affects the thoracolumbar junction. We want to make sure that that patient has uh, some laxity of the of the hip flexors, that they don't have tight psoas. So a psoas stretch, whether that be kneeling or with their foot up on a chair, we can also have them stretch out their lats because the lats certainly affect the thoracolumbar junction and um, getting that patient to get some stability exercises and and potentially pelvic tilt exercises to help increase the mobility. We don't want chronic stretch of the area and we don't want chronic compression of the area. So making sure that our exercises are directing, striking a balance and a balance not just in those muscles that affect the joints, but also those muscles that affect biomechanical function from a standpoint of breathing and hip abductor weakness. That if someone has dysfunctional breathing, that diaphragm is definitely impacting the thoracolumbar junction. If someone's breathing from their upper chest constantly, 
the likelihood of them having dysfunctional dysfunction at the thoracolumbar junction is much higher. So teaching our patients how to breathe from their belly as opposed to breathing from their upper chest, and that's hard because they've practiced several million times the other way. But we can teach them how to put a hand on their chest and a hand on their belly and make sure just the hand on the belly moves when they take a breath, and hopefully then they can move that in, into real life and those ADLs, that if they are sitting on their couch and they're hunched forward, that they're not doing that constantly, that they're getting into a workstation that promotes their posture, that we're teaching them to take breaks from prolonged standing and prolonged walking, which can be a, a stretch or a stressor to those clunial nerves and the dorsal roots as they come out of the area, especially if there's a lot of degeneration in our older patients. They're not going to like ex prolonged extension. Some of these patients, the older ones, look very much like stenosis. When they stand, they have pain in their back and iliac crest and buttock. That's not always degeneration at the lumbar spine that's causing it. Sometimes it's degeneration at the thoracolumbar junction. So those are patients who need to take breaks. They need to uh, loosen up their, their tight hip flexors, which are constantly tight because they've bent forward all day to try to get out of that position, and really addressing those underlying functional deficits that are just perpetuating that patient's problem. So what I heard, the, the most interesting, when I go to seminars, when I talk with you, when I talk with colleagues, Everybody wants to focus on methods and they want to talk about DNS. They want to talk about McKenzie method. They want to talk about spinal manipulation. They want to talk about exercise. But from what I've heard from you today is that all those things are um, the, the, the effect. We have to have the right diagnosis first, meaning once you have a diagnosis of Meng syndrome because they have hypermobility in the thoracolumbar junction, then it just comes down to how many tricks do you have in your bag? Meaning, are you a DNS provider and work with breathing and stabilization positions? Or um, maybe they, and, and we could do some manipulation uh, above and below that joint, or maybe they need more mobility, or maybe your McKenzie method, and we need to do side glides to the side to open up that frame. And we don't care. I, I don't care. You're, I absolutely guarantee your patient doesn't care what letters were behind your name. It's a multimodal approach. You know, and the more tools you have in your bag and the more of those uh, little pieces or variables associated with that patient care that you can provide to your patients, the faster you can get uh, them out of pain and improve, of course, your reputation, your community. And I think that's the biggest piece behind Meng syndrome is one, being able to recognize it. We're going to put the uh, condition report um, in the description of this podcast and I'll just allow you to download what we use. And it's not hey, we manipulate this and everything goes away. Or just as important, we're not going to provide these exercises and your pain's going to go away. It takes more. It takes your patient understanding their condition just as well as you do. And if they do that, they're going to come to you with, hey, I noticed I've been doing this. Is this contributory? And the more you uh, arm your patient or um, let them know what's going on, they're going to be able to select or maybe deselect uh, what they're doing in daily life. They're going to help themselves. So please uh, download that. That's going to help you in practice. And I think at the, the very end of this, you know, we recognize, you know, that, you know, each and every one of us, and not even just us, every healthcare provider, we can all live in our own fairyland if our ego is big enough. But um, if you're the type of provider listening to this kind of webinar uh, and you can remain agile in your education and your treatment processes, then there will be a schism in healthcare. Um, we're going to be able to separate the good, the bad, and the downright lazy providers. And the people listening to this webinar or this podcast, um, that's that's you, you know, people looking for more answers. So, you know, we're really looking to help chiropractors get better clinical results uh, by spending less time with patients. And I, and I 
mean that 100% and transparent is that I want to spend less time with patients, but not because I'm lazy, because I don't need to be spending that much time with all my patients. I just need to be providing the right treatment to the right patient. And I think that if we can do that, we can really change the perception and the opinions of the public on what we do. So hopefully we could take this podcast, we can, uh, you know, kind of take the collective knowledge that we have from our profession using Cairo Up, using medical research, and most importantly, the uh, the opinions from Dr. B and I. Um, you know, our opinions are very important. Uh, just ask us. Um, but I, I really think that this is uh, going to be a fun endeavor, putting this podcast together. Um, I think that um, this is something that we can really um, take to to speak to you, um, the, the listener. And one thing that we will ask from you uh, is we need your input. Um, so so just like Chiropa, a software that's pretty much built for chiropractors to solve your problems and automate those problems, um, we need to know what to talk about, not what to code this time, but what to talk about. So give us your feedback in the comments section, or you can email me if it's a very technical, um, elaborate question, uh, Brandon at Um If you have a real easy softball question, that'll be Tim at Um because uh, this is something we enjoy doing, and we hope to uh, uh, keep this podcast going with uh, the more questions and feedback we get from you. And uh, just like always with Cairo Up, uh, we look for all the research, we assess it, we strip it down, uh, we give it to you in usable formats, all so we can help change the per- uh, perception of where chiropractic is and, and mostly where we're going. Awesome. Thanks for uh, listening today. We appreciate your time. We know that it's valuable. We're in practice too. We know that by working together, by sharing knowledge, by sharing our skills, we can become that undeniable best choice for patients and payers alike. We can't wait to hear from you. How can we make this podcast better? What are the topics you want to hear? And we'll move forward. Thanks for listening.